Good morning, everyone. It is certainly a pleasure to be back and worshiping the Lord together. Uh, thanks for everyone who preached in my absence and who's been helping out and ministering to the, the kids and everybody. We're so blessed to have a, a family of Christ that we can uh, just draw near to him together, to hear him speak, to see his faithfulness, to see his promises fulfilled. What a great God. Uh, a couple of announcements. We are back in the swing of things. So Wednesday, the women's Bible study starts again. Friday, the Bible study and the uh, youth are meeting again at 730. So you're welcome to come out to that. And uh, today we are going to observe communion together. So if you're a born again Christian, you are invited and welcome to partake. And uh, at the end of the service, I'll just invite you to come forward and we'll take of the bread and the cup and then uh, receive that together. So we'll be in Romans chapter seven. If you'll turn there and let's pray. Oh God, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your healing, miraculous, saving power that you have extended to us through our savior, Jesus. And we thank you for opportunities to remember him together, to proclaim him together. And may your love and your light shine through each one of us. Lord, we draw near to you to hear from you. We, we are desperate to hear from you today. So we pray you would speak to us, that we would be receptive, we would be humble, and that uh, you would be honored and glorified in our fellowship today. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, we were planning a family retreat, a church retreat, and there was one person, she said she planned to go, she was committed to going, and I kept looking at the roster and she just never signed up. So one day I said, hey, you're planning on going, right? Why don't you... Why haven't you signed up? And she says, well, I could be dead by then. And I thought that was very strange. I said, you know, if, if you, if God called you to be home in heaven with him, if Jesus called you home, we would not hold it against you. If you didn't come to the retreat, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think badly of you. If you didn't show up, like we wouldn't expect you to be there because you're with the Lord. No one expects a work colleague to report in after they have attended their funeral to write them up for disciplinary action, right? They are free of their previous obligations because they have passed away and death. It ends our obligations that were responsible during our lives. And uh, Paul has been teaching us in Romans through the gospel. Christians have died to sin. Now we are alive to God. And this is the reality for those who are born again. And our relationship with sin and with God has totally changed because we've been raised to live under grace, filled with the Holy spirit, empowered to walk with him who is our life. So since we've died to sin, since we're raised to a new life by the gospel, our relationship with the law of Moses has changed as well. And that's what he tackles in chapter seven, the law that brought the knowledge of sin. It's been nailed to the cross with Jesus. It's power to condemn us ended forever. And I like the poem that many attribute to John Berridge. It says to run and work the law commands yet gives me neither feet nor hands a sweeter thing. The gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings. So the law shows us what's good in God's sight, but it gave us no ability to keep the law. And because the gospel is God's gift to us and it's his work in us, 
We are empowered by God to do his will, not compelled by the letter of the law, but his love through Jesus. We have this new way of living that is opened up to us as Paul writes in Romans six fourteen, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under law, but under grace. So by the gospel, we can choose who we will serve today. And we know that we are enabled to and guided to because the light of the world, Jesus Christ lives in us. So starting in Romans chapter seven, verse one, or do you not know brethren? For I speak to those who know the law that the law has dominion over a man. As long as he lives for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband. As long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then while her husband lives, she marries another man. She will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. In the previous chapter, Paul explained spiritually what has happened when we were born again and trusted in Christ. Our old man was crucified with Christ so that we might be dead to sin and alive to God. And since this is the spiritual reality, we ought to make this true practically to live in such a way that we present ourselves as servants to God, rather than letting sin have dominion over us because we've been freed from that. Chapter seven, he uses this illustration to show that in addition to dying to sin by the reality of what Jesus has done, we are also dead to the law. And he specifically addresses those who were familiar with the law. He says, I'm writing to you who understand the law to make a point. And he says, a wife married to a husband, if she were to marry another man, while she is still married, she would be considered an adulteress because she is bound by the law to remain married to her spouse for the rest of her life. Now he's not setting forth any new rules concerning marriage here in context. The point that he's making is that the wife whose spouse has died is no longer bound by the law of her husband. Since he has died, it has changed her relationship with him. She can marry another man and would not be in adultery. She is free from that previous law that held her. Now I don't want to stretch Paul's illustration too far and miss the point. He's saying, because we have died to the law, it no longer has dominion over us as Christians. We are raised to new life and a freedom that he will explain verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who has raised us raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. When you think about freedom, often when I think of freedom, I think of being able to do what I want to say what I want to go where I want. It's pretty much, I get to decide how I live my life. That's freedom. And that's why kids look forward to leaving the family home. They're like, I can leave these restrictions. I can leave these chores. I can decide when I go to bed. There's no curfew for me. I am in charge. Now, some people imagine that's what freedom from the law means that we don't need to keep the law and we're free to do as we please. 
but this is inaccurate. The fact is we have died to sin. We have died to the law of Moses by Jesus death. We are freed from the power of the law, the condemnation of the law, right? Raised to new life to be married to a new husband, to be joined with Christ, to be filled with the spirit because Jesus is the head of the body, the church. So we're born again. We're free from the law, not to be single and mingle, to play the field. No, it's you've been freed from that to be joined and united with Jesus. He is now your head. His spirit now guides you. It's not the deadness of the law anymore. The letter of the law, the black and white, but now a living relationship with God who empowers us and guides us to do his will. Trying to live by the law of Moses. It never led to life. It bore no spiritual fruit acceptable to God. Paul explains in Galatians 2:19, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. The law was good, but all it did was for us is it stirred up and multiplied our sin. So the law is no longer the authority that we look to for Christian living. We look to Christ. We obey Christ who said it has been written, but I say unto you, he goes beyond the letter of the law. It's not a lesser standard. It's a higher standard. One that he enables us to live through the indwelling power of the Holy spirit. To people who knew the law of Moses, Paul explained that their relationship with the law was to change because they had died to it. Raised to new life. They were to look to Jesus and obey him. Now for the Jews in the early church and for us too, it's easy and somewhat comfortable to live in the past because it's familiar. And we see from the beginning of the church, it was very difficult for the Jews to have their relationship with the law changed. They continued to try to burden Jews to keep the law. And they also pressured Gentiles to live like Jews to also keep the law. Like, well, Jesus, it's fine that you've received Christ, but you also need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to observe the Sabbath. Like we have traditionally all this time. God didn't save us to keep the law. He saved us so we might have a new relationship through him. It would be so odd, right? If a widow remarried and acted like her first husband was still alive and every decision that they had made together, she grandfathered into her new relationship. So instead of discussing what they should do or what, how, how the household should be run, it's like, well, I already have a previous agreement about how we do life in our household. Like you'd say, wow, that's something's wrong with this picture because you have a new husband. Now you have someone else that you're supposed to be talking with and communicating with and living together, loving one another, listening to each other, like actually having a relationship rather than honoring and your loyalty to your previous husband, taking precedence over your new husband. Knowing that we've died to sin, we have died to the law means the relationship the Jews once had with the law had changed and that Gentiles ought not imagine God saved them to keep the law. When God gives us a new way of living through the Holy spirit that lives beyond the letter of the law, a life of faith marked with obedience to God, inspired by his love, enabled by his power. 
So what does it mean to live to God, to live to God, to live to God? It suggests an orientation that we're looking to the Lord in faith, that we're loving him. We're trusting in him. We're not looking back to uh, the law or something else to govern us when we have Christ and he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit and we see his example. He's put us in a body of believers. He has given us his word to guide and direct us. We're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto him, demonstrating love for God by loving one another, even loving our enemies and praying for them. So to live to God, it means to deny ourselves, uh, to, to put his will above our will and to follow him. Now, guess what? We can't do this from the effort of our flesh. We couldn't keep the law by the effort of our flesh. So how can we follow Jesus by the effort of our flesh? How can we avoid sin by the effort of our flesh? It's not, that's not the right relationship anymore. So he is giving us some foundational truth in how we should be living godly. We've been delivered from death to serve God in the newness of the spirit. And we read in Galatians 5:13, for you brethren have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then verse 16, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Holy spirit will never lead you to do what God says is sin. Yet there's this sinful draw in our flesh that still remains as Jesus has triumphed over sin and death. So we too can walk in the spirit rather than the flesh, right? Jesus overcame death. He overcame sin. He has defeated it. And so we can walk in his victory through the power of the spirit. Romans seven, verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would have not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death for sin, taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment, holy and just and good. Paul's like, I know what you're thinking. We're not to live under the law anymore. So is the law sin? And it shows how extreme we can be. When people heard righteousness doesn't come by the law, they imagined it was sinful. They're like, oh, well, out with that. We're going to just get rid of it altogether. Well, no, it still fulfills God's design and purpose. It's function. It remains just as strong and holy and good now as it ever was. It's not outdated. It's not obsolete because by the law is the knowledge of sin. The coming of Jesus, the revelation of the gospel, it makes us clear that unless we know what sin is, how will we know we're sinners? What, why would we seek a savior? Why would we want see our need? But the law shows us our need just like a mirror. When we hold it up, it shows our face needs cleaning. Well, God's law shows us how corrupt we are, how sinful we are, how wicked and lost we are, how much we need God. Now, Paul, he's switching here to first person and he's speaking from personal experience. 
He says, I would not have known sin. I would not have known coveting was a sin until the law told me and covet is to want something that someone else has for yourself. Has anyone in here ever coveted? I would be shocked. I, I would deem it impossible. If I said, is there anyone here who has not coveted? And you go, well, I never have never me. Moi, I have never coveted in my life. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. The heart of covetousness, it's ingratitude for what God's given us coupled with selfishness and greed. All of this flourishes naturally in our flesh. We're always looking at what other people have. We often want things that we don't have. And he says, but sin taking the opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire, knowing that there was a line. Paul now had this seed planted in his mind, growing to cross that line, right? He wanted to transgress and and say, well, why isn't that a problem? Why shouldn't I explore that? Sometimes it's fun to do something. And I think just as a kid, something that you weren't supposed to do and get away with it. I think about trespassing and stealing your neighbor's fruit. That rush of adrenaline you get when you jump that fence and you're looking around and you're taking the fruit and then scampering away. You don't get that adrenaline when you're eating from your own plum tree in your own backyard, right? There's no risk. But there's some, there's an allure. There's a draw to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Marriage, it's a covenant between a husband and a wife. Proverbs 5.15, it wisely exhorted people to contain and express sexual love within their own marriage. It says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Now, in contrast to wisdom, the foolish woman says in Proverbs 9.17, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So being in a marriage relationship, there is now a temptation that wasn't there before to go beyond the marriage relationship to explore through an affair much. And it can feel much more exciting than staying faithful to your spouse. The law never deceives us, but sin does. It seems enticing. It is exciting, but it leaves us empty dissatisfied and even ashamed. It can feel empowering to cross that line, but having crossed that line, there's guilt that we cannot escape. There's a conviction of our soul where we know that we've done wrong. And Paul said, there was a time in my life I was alive without the law. There was a time he was ignorant of what the law said, but as soon as he heard the commandment, it exposed his sinfulness. And he says, I died. It killed me. It showed how sinful I was. And there was a season where Paul was smug and self-righteous. And then there was an understanding of the law came that convicted him. The commandment that he thought would bring him life. It only brought him death and he was unable to do what the law said. It's kind of like oars when you're, you're rowing in a, in a pond and they start stirring up the sediment and the water gets cloudy The law stirred up this wicked desire in his heart that he didn't even know was there. The fault was not with God. The fault was not with the law, but it exposed his own folly, his own sin. It produced sin in him. Verse 13 has then what is good become death to me. Certainly not. 
but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal sold under sin for what I am doing. I do not understand for what I will do that. I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So he's established the law is good. It's holy. It's just. And so did the good law become death to Paul? No, the law was not bad, but it drew his sin to the surface. When I was a kid, I used to take a magnet and just move it around in the dust. Guys, anyone ever do this? And then you, you lift it up and it's got all these little metal fragments on it that you never saw in the dust before. So these fine metallic bits, they clumped on the magnet. And once they get on, they're kind of hard to get off. And, and I just was like, wow, I, I never saw all these pieces of metal that were just in the dirt here. And that was because of the good, strong magnet. It drew them out the law because it's good. And because it's strong, it exposed our sin. It brought it right to the surface so we could see it and go, wow, that was there. That's in me. So death was produced by what was good. The good law, the strong law, it brought my sin, our sin to the surface. And the law is spiritual. So by observation and by experience, Paul learned that a spiritual law cannot save you or help a carnal man. Someone who is just trying to do their best in the flesh. Now, naturally, he says, I was sold under sin. That means under the control and influence of sinful desire. He's not speaking theoretically. He's speaking in present of the situation he faced as a born again believer. There had been an inner transformation by faith in Jesus Christ, but he still lived in a body of flesh. He lived, he was still subject to gravity and worldly influences and advancing age, sickness, fatigue. He was in this body living. And so for us, though we've been spiritually born again, spiritually cleansed, our sin has been washed away. It's like a tumor has been removed from us, but there is still an effect of sin that remains in us because we're living in this body. It's kind of like the smell of smoke or bacon after you burnt the bacon it kind of lingers in the house. You can remove the tumor, but the cells can still be going through your bloodstream. There is a residual effect of sin in our lives after being forgiven of all our sin because we're living in this body. So this residual sin, this um, indwelling sin, it created a conflict within Paul now in regards to obeying Christ and ceasing from sin because for his whole life, sin had had full reign and dominion over him. It's kind of like someone who's in an abusive relationship and they struggle to break that off because there are some, there's a connection that's still there. There's still a draw and a compassion towards the person, even though it's been painful and hurtful. And so in Paul's life, he's like, sin has had me my whole life affecting my body, my mind and my desires. He had many sinful habits that took effort to break, but he couldn't break them in his flesh. He needed God's power to break them. The old man had died with Christ. He'd been raised to new life that was in conflict with this indwelling sin because I, I, he willed to do the good thing 
that he didn't always do. And he sometimes did the bad thing that he didn't want to do. Can you guys identify with this? Paul's case was not fighting a losing battle, wanting to avoid sin and continuing it. That's the battle that he had under the law. It was a losing battle. There was no winning that battle by trying to do your best and always falling short. Now, when he sinned, it was not due to the impulse of the new man, but from sin in him. He's like that sin, that indwelling sin that's remained in me. It still has an influence over me, but we're don't get ahead of ourselves. I, I need to just, okay. Remember Paul is writing to people who understood the law and he's making a point that their relationship with the law needed to change. It had changed, but they needed to implement that change to realize that you don't look to the law as your standard for living anymore. You look to Christ because you have a living relationship with him. The law, very good at setting boundaries, very good at saying what's right and what's wrong, but it cannot help us keep it. It cannot strengthen us to do what's right. The thing that we even want to do that we go, yes, that's right. I should be doing that. But guess what? You still don't do it. So efforts to keep the law by his flesh would not help him any more as a believer than before he knew Christ. Verse 18, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good. I do not find for the good that I will to do. I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man, the law exposes our sin. The Holy spirit has brought clarity that the law affirmed that in our flesh and Paul's flesh, there was nothing good. There was no ability in Paul's strength to keep the law, to save himself. He had been forgiven. He had been cleansed of all his sin. He had been born again by faith in Jesus. He still lived in a physical body that was predisposed to sin. As a Pharisee, he could boast about his Jewish pedigree, his circumcision, how he kept the feasts, how he washed his hands, the, the prayers that he uttered. He, he could boast in Gamaliel, his tutor. But despite his knowledge of right and wrong, his flesh was incapable in itself to do what he knew was right. The things he wanted to do that were right. And what he, the, the desire of his heart to please God, he, he always kept falling short through his flesh. God showed his people what was good in the law. And when Paul tried to do it, he discovered another law that evils present within me. And this remained true as a Jewish Christian. He delighted in the law, but he fell short of keeping it. Now it's one thing for a surgeon to remove a localized and contain cancerous tumor, right? The tumor is all contained. They're able to remove that from the body. Now there's something very different when you have a, a physical condition, right? A permanent health condition. There's conditions that we have that are not curable, but they can be managed. For instance, type one diabetes, it's a condition where the immune system, it sees the cells in the pancreas as harmful and it attacks the pancreas. And without insulin, the body begins to attack itself. It leads to fat and muscle loss um, and injections of insulin. It allows sugar in your bloodstream to be absorbed properly by cells. 
So using that as an illustration in Christ, we died to sin and the law. It's like we have had the sin removed from us, yet we still have a physical condition, a permanent condition because we live in these bodies of flesh where there is an influence of sin that can be managed now through the power of the indwelling Holy spirit. We have his life saving infusion that empowers us day by day to walk wisely and to follow him. And if we're unable to do what is right. And instead we practice sin. It's evidence that we're trying to live by the power of the flesh where no good thing dwells. We're leaning on our own strength to do what God says or to avoid sin. And that will always fail. It did under law and it also does under grace. This is a really key point. Type one diabetics. They're not focused on not being a diabetic. That's not, they have to acknowledge that they are a diabetic and they can manage their diabetes, right? So it's an acknowledging your condition and managing your condition that you can walk without, you can live a healthy, fulfilling life without being, being controlled by that condition. Regular blood checks, injections of insulin. It keeps a diabetic, diabetic from being ravaged by diabetes. So trying not to sin by the power of the flesh, it never works. We have to be born again and then filled with the Holy spirit and walk in the spirit. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians five sixteen through 18. I say, then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. So it's not try, but trust. It's not do, but done. We recognize what God has done for us, who he is in us. And he enables us to walk wisely according to his will. Verse 23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Being dead to the law of Moses, it revealed other laws or principles that were at work and still in force in the lives of believers. In verse 21, he discovered his new inward man wanted to do good. He willed to do good, but evil was present in him. Being born again, it didn't mean the temptation to sin had just disappeared and evaporated. He saw another work as well, that his flesh was warring against his mind and seeking to bring him back under bondage again. He'd been forgiven and saved from his sin Yet sin continued to war against him. It was like these attacks kept coming. It was over his, an attack in his mind, an attack in his affections, an attack that was happening inside of him. It was a new battlefield where sin was trying to control him. And he learned by experience, trying to fight it, resist it, to overcome it by his own power was futile. That was the unwinnable battle. It's good that we also learn this 
And he cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am wretched. It means miserable, despicable, worthless through exhaustion of hard labor. So it's like, I am spent. I am spent trying to defeat the sin by my own strength. So trying to fight against the law of sin in him through the principle of law. That's the issue. He's trying to fight sin with the principle of law. Do this. Don't do that. And failing it wore him out. As he fought against sin and the power of his flesh, he was like a runner who had collapsed during the race and couldn't even stand up anymore. He was like a warrior who was so weary. He could not even raise the white flag to surrender like spent completely. And then says, who can deliver me from this body of death? And some Christians get stuck right here. And we have, a lot of us have been in this place. We could still be in this place. They're stuck in Romans seven, fighting a losing battle with sin because they're fighting in the power of the flesh. Pride deceives us to think that we are sufficient in ourselves and our inability to walk in victory over sin or to do what's good. It shows how futile our own efforts are that our willpower, our knowledge is not enough to keep us from sinning. And when Goliath shouted at the children of Israel, he was on one mountain and the children of Israel were on the other. It was this valley in the middle. He's shouting at them. He's hurling abuse at them. They ran away in fear. They could avoid him because he was on one hill and they were on the other hill. They could go and hide in their tents and wait till he left and then come out. But we can't run away from a battle that happens inside of us, in our minds, in our bodies. Sin, its influence lingers though. We've been forgiven. There's that indwelling sin, that residual sin that still is aiming in this body of flesh for control. And it's tragic when we get to a point where we just surrender to sin. We're not crying out, oh, wretched man. We know we're wretched and we just kind of give up. We, we are beaten. It does not have to be that. We don't have to be running scared from sin that's bullying us because there's an awesome hope that Jesus Christ has given us for all Christians. And he's like, who will deliver me? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the answer to defeating not only the sin that damned us to hell, but the sin that's trying to control us today, the sin and the inability for us to actually do what's good. He gives us the answer. He provides the solution. Victory is not through the principle of law, fleshly effort to avoid sin or to do good, but through Jesus himself living his life through us through those who believe. And as we surrender our lives to him by faith, marked with experience to him, we can have victory as sure as you've been born again by the gospel. You know, you're born again through faith in Jesus and what he's accomplished for you because of the covenant he's made. Well, you can have the same assurance of victory over sin and the ability and power to do what pleases God through the Holy spirit. So to people who understood the law of Moses, he explained that our relationship with the law needs to change. It has changed. We need to implement those changes. It gives knowledge. We cannot follow. It guides us to do what we cannot do. It reveals problems. It cannot fix. It's the savior we needed all along. 
Jesus is the savior we needed. The law could never save. So knowing it, trying to follow it, that can't help us. The law is not sinful, but it was never a savior. It's in Christ that we're dead to the law, dead to sin and alive to God. Now we've often sung that song. Oh, come to the altar by elevation worship. It says, are you hurting and broken within overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Oh, come to the altar. The father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. A lot of Christians come to Jesus for salvation and for forgiveness from past sin who have yet to come to him in surrender. So his life can be lived through you, right? You come to him at the beginning for your salvation. You come to him for forgiveness. And that's the reason why you may keep coming just to be forgiven, not to be filled with the spirit not to be guided in truth in real time of how you ought to live the sin. He exposing the sin that we didn't think was sin by his spirit. And then doing the loving thing that we never thought to do that the law never taught us because he now helps us. He guides us. Do you see the difference only coming to Jesus for forgiveness of past sin, but not coming to Jesus for his empowerment and the Holy spirit to guide and direct you every day moving forward. One's looking back with guilt and shame. The other's looking to Jesus saying, Jesus, I want to live to you. I want your will to be done in my life. I want to do your will. And I want to stop doing what's sinful and wicked that the law didn't talk about, but you have talked about, you have spoken to me. Your flesh cannot make you right with God or keep you doing right as long as you're operating on the principle of the law and the power of your flesh. So let's come to Jesus in our wretchedness. Let's say, yes, I am the wretched man. Let's own our sin in taking personal responsibility of it at the same time, disowning it to forsake our sin and obedience to a savior. Not because the law says this or that, but because Jesus is our God. He is our savior. Something the law could never do. Our King who gives us victory every day. So the first Sunday of the month, we receive communion together. Uh, It's a sobering time because we remember the price that Jesus paid the, the immense price that he paid with his own blood on Calvary, shedding his blood for our sin. We are guilty He shed his blood so we could live. It's also a time of rejoicing because God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And in that act of Jesus dying on the cross and providing atonement for our sin, we died to sin. We died to the law. And now we've been raised to newness of life in Christ who lives in us. Now the temple of the Holy spirit We are alive to God, even as Jesus rose from the grave in eternal glory. So since we have died to the the sin, why should we live in it anymore? Why should it have dominion over us when we're called to trust Christ and to walk in him? Jesus has done for us what the law could never do. Forgive us all our sins once and for all. Fill us with the Holy spirit. Give us eternal life. Empower us to walk in victory over sin today. Empower us to do his will. 
because we're now under grace. Praise God for delivering us from the power of sin. Praise God for delivering us from the, the condemnation of the law. And by faith in him, he has delivered us from our wretched condition. Don't stay in chapter seven, just lamenting over your wretchedness when you can look to Jesus and have that savior who loves you, who has given everything to redeem you and who wants to have a relationship with you today. Could I please uh, ask the worship team to come forward? And as they do, let's just humble our hearts before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these everlasting truths that you have taught us through your word. And I pray that you would show us through our failure, even that in our flesh dwells, no good thing Uh, that we are wretched. If we try to save ourselves that we can't and thank you that we have a savior in Jesus. Thank you that we have our Lord who lives and reigns and rules forever. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. How long suffering you've been with each one of us, Lord, how long we've been in darkness and we've come into your marvelous light. We desire to hear you speak consistently, constantly, but Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to be looking to you, to orient our hearts toward you, to change our desires, to change our, our, uh, our habits that we would see that it's really a matter of life and death. And we'd learn to follow you. We'd learn to obey you. Our relationship has changed with the law and with sin and death. And I pray that we would live according to this newness of life, that we'd experience that, that we'd know what it is, that it wouldn't be a foreign concept to us, but Lord, you would fill us with your joy and your presence. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus, his broken body, and that we can Um, receive of this together in Jesus name. Amen.